Hi, and welcome to this edition of Criminal Justice Natters with me, Ed Johnston. Today we are joined by Sophie Marsh, who is a PhD candidate at the University of the West of England, and she is also an associate lecturer on a number of uh, law modules and criminology modules as well. Her expertise lies in the field of sexual violence and in particular the impact of attrition on rape cases and rape myths that are prevalent in society and in the criminal justice system. So in our chat today, Sophie is going to be explaining her research to us, why it's problematic and what we can do about it. Hi, Sophie. Thanks very much for joining us today. Um, I wonder if you could introduce yourself to um, to our viewers and explain who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. Hi, everyone. And thanks for having me, Ed. Uh, My name is Sophie Marsh and I'm a second year law PhD student at UWE. Um, Ed is actually my director of studies, hence we know each other. And he also taught me... um, in my undergraduate and was my dissertation supervisor as well. Um, Alongside my PhD, I've been teaching on a number of criminology and law modules at UWE as well, um, mainly criminal justice-based modules. Okay. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about your PhD? Because some of that is what we're going to delve into today in terms of what what we're going to look at and maybe bring some of the issues to a wider audience. So what is, in a nutshell, what is your PhD on and why is it important? Yeah, so in a nutshell, um, my PhD is on the attrition of rape and I'm sure we'll um, delve into what we mean by attrition a little bit later on. Um, it essentially is going to explore a huge number of case dropout in the last few decades with regards to cases of sexual violence and in particular rape. And what it attempts to do is explore the influences of such case dropout, why this is happening, and um, will hopefully uh, offer a solution towards the end of the thesis as well. Okay, so we're looking at attrition in terms of rape cases today. Um, So Am I right in thinking that what we mean by attrition is when a case is reported to the police and somewhere between the reporting and the whole journey through the criminal justice process, the attrition is the dropout rate of that? Yes, and it can be applied to any number of offences, but for some reason we only really routinely see it discussed in the context of um, sexual offences and sexual violence. Okay, and your PhD uh, looks at rape myths as well, is that right? Yes, it does, yes, Um, and that's something I'm sure we'll discuss, but um, evidently it seems to be one of the biggest influences on this attrition. Okay, Um, just, right, well, we'll start with the attrition thing, because this seems to be a perennial problem in, in criminal justice year on year in terms of the prosecuting of sexual assault cases and in particular rape and it's gotten to the stage now where conviction rates are so low that there have been calls in the media um, in January of this year for juries to be disbanded from rape trials that we're not going to have rape we shouldn't have juries for rape trials because the conviction rates are so low. I read a report and I think we're going to discuss some of this report today um, 
last October from Sky News that said in the year end in March 2020, 99% of rapes reported to the police in England and Wales resulted in no legal proceedings against the alleged attackers. Now, obviously, that's the headline. Um, what, what would be your take on, on that? I think the headline itself ultimately depicts the true level of attrition that we're seeing in the justice system at the moment. Um, and essentially, a lot of these cases are sort of either NFA, no further action, um, the complainant may withdraw their complaint as well. Um, there's a number of different influences on that attrition there. Okay. Um, so what can we, so what influences the, this dropout, this attrition? Why is it that, that rape cases in particular, you know, Sky News lead with the idea that is rape the perfect crime, i.e. you're going to get away with it. What is it with this 99% of cases that um, nothing happens? Yeah, there's there's so many different factors at play there. Um, the type of the case is often something that would sort of encourage, I suppose, the complainant to withdraw the complaint. Um, for example, if it's an acquaintance or a very sort of close relationship um, with the the person accused at the time that might sort of bring up difficulties for the complainant um the sort of emotional stress of the investigation and the prosecution and the trial if it goes to trial itself often dissuades the complainant um there's some research that suggests that complainants have considered that this sort of process is like the ordeal happening all over again they, they feel that disclosing this um, sexual violence and actually talking about it, particularly in a criminal justice setting, um, they've described that as being like being raped all over again. So there's those factors that might encourage the withdrawal of the complaint. But there's also uh, research that suggests that complainants often don't feel like they're believed by the police um, for a number of different reasons and essentially this also owes to the huge lack of reporting that we're seeing as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this, so if we take this second to trauma, um, and it's like reliving the whole experience, and you know, th there has been, you're right, there has been um, sort of quotes in the literature, like it's be, it's effectively being raped again. What impact then we, we touched on rape myths is that a separate issue or are the myths sort of combined with this secondary trauma does that play into attrition yeah i think it does really um ultimately i haven't got to that stage of my thesis just yet and hopefully the empirical research that i do will pick that apart um i hope to interview different members and different actors throughout different stages of the criminal justice system and sort of assess the prevalence of rape myths um, and whether that's having an impact on the attrition. But one of the biggest barriers to reporting is this idea of fear of disbelief. Um, the complainants and the victims feel that if they were to disclose this sexual violence to the authorities that they wouldn't be believed and therefore this trauma in reporting it all over again would sort of be for nothing, I suppose. Okay. So in terms of these barriers, uh, this fear of disbelief, 
we're going to have myths kind of permeate sort of through everything. So what are the sort of most striking myths concerning rape that sort of stand out to you from what you've studied so far, or what you've learned or what you're interested in? Yeah, there's so many different myths out there, but the ones that have been identified as being most prevalent or um, being sort of most problematic, uh, one in particular is that the perpetrator is always or, or usually a stranger, when actually, in fact, in a roughly 90, 90% of cases, um, the offender or the suspect, whichever part of the process we're in at that point, no. uh, they are actually known to the victim. So whether that's someone they briefly encountered and said hello to, or right all the way up to um, somebody they're in a close, intimate relationship with. Okay, so one of the biggest myths is that you're going to be raped by a stranger, but in fact, in around about 90%, very roughly speaking, 90% uh, of cases, your, um, your alleged rapist is going to be someone who is known to you. Yeah. Okay. So I think that has a huge impact on society and the way that we behave. I mean, everybody's, I'm sure, going to be familiar with um, the sort of Sarah Everard movement and this this huge pressure on um, women not feeling safe being out alone, particularly at night. And ultimately, whilst that's true, I feel like it detracts from the true nature of the fact that most sexual violence is committed by somebody known to you. There's always this idea of, don't go walking alone somewhere at night in a, down a dark alleyway because someone's going to be waiting for you in the shadows and will sort of jump out at you and attack you when actually, you know, your own partner is statistically more likely to commit sexual violence against you. So it's about breaking that barrier down and, and making people aware of that and making them be able to identify those risk factors as well. Okay, so our first and one of the most prevalent rape myths is the fact it's going to be a stranger that rapes you. Let's go through a couple of other myths if we can, Sophie. Yeah, so another really common myth is that the complainant or the victim would do everything that they can to fight their attacker off. Um, and therefore, if they didn't fight the attack off, it wasn't rape. Now, the definition of consent under the Sexual Offences Act 2003 does not pay any attention to this idea of resistance. Um, and also, a wealth of literature has found that around sort of 80% of complainants did not resist their attack. And in fact, um, one study found that I think it was around 70%, I believe, of complainants that were um, interviewed suffered from something called tonic immobility. And that's essentially where the shock of the ordeal and the shock of the violence that you're being subjected to means that your body can't move and um, you are stuck you are frozen and therefore even if you're sort of screaming in your head for them to stop and you're in your head you're trying to resist it would mean that your body wouldn't allow you to mm -hmm. so not only do we have these victims not not resisting the attack but actually it might be because of a physiological response to the trauma that they're being subjected to so there's evidence to suggest that people do freeze completely yeah. Uh, whilst this attack is happening. So again, I think, because what I think, what one of the biggest issues concerning myths and concerning this sort of lack of physical injury or lack of resistance is the idea that people constantly put themselves in the position of the complainant 
or the survivor or the victim. And they say, well, I would have bitten his ear. I would have scratched his eyes. I would have, you, you know, and so evidence is suggesting that the majority of people and quite a high majority of people are simply going to freeze and effectively allow this attack to be carried out. Yeah, you see in the media and even in social groups all the time, um, people commenting on particular cases and saying, well, questioning whether it really was rape or any kind of other sexual violence and whether um, whether they would have done the same thing. But ultimately, until you're in that situation, you have absolutely no idea of how you react. And I think it's really mm -hmm. dangerous because, again, this detracts from the true reality of sexual violence and creates these myths which we assume are um, posing this huge barrier to criminal justice and, and prosecutions and convictions of rape in particular. Okay. Um, how about some more myths? And then we're going to yeah. piece it together to a case study and we're going to see an ordinary case study of a, of a woman who was unfortunately raped and we're going to see this spoiler alert. We're going to see these myths play out. So give me a couple more uh, myths. In that case, isn't it? Yeah. Um, another common myth is that um, complainants or victims, whichever terminology you prefer, will report the attack to the police immediately when actually it's assumed that around 70% of complainants never report the ordeal to the authority. Um, there's some new statistics that are going to be released at the end of the month, which might give us a truer picture of this. But ultimately, it's very uncommon for complainants to report their sexual violence, um, sorry, the sexual violence that they've been subjected to, mm. to the authorities. And in addition to that, a lot of this is historic. So it might be something that happened to them even decades ago. Um, certainly it's very uncommon for a victim to go to the police um, as soon as as the attack has happened okay um any other complaints uh, myths rather sorry yeah there's a really common myth that um the complainant is usually lying about the allegation um when actually it's really hard to ascertain a true statistic on false allegations um some of that is because it's hard to sort of establish whether it's a false allegation or not and also a false allegation doesn't necessarily mean a fabrication of events but the rough statistic is around sort of two to ten percent I believe um, of cases are considered to be these false allegations and as I said it doesn't necessarily mean that there's a fabrication of events there it's not necessarily a malicious lie to um to get that suspect into trouble but there is a huge assumption that um, rape and other forms of sexual violence are commonly lied about. And again, this completely undermines the account of the complainant and also the trauma that they've been subjected to and, and their um, emotional distress that's attached to that. Okay. So what we've got here are four sort of prevalent rape myths um, that exist in society. And there are a, a large number of others as well. But I want to run you through and run our viewers through um, the story of Bonnie Turner, who um, gave her account of her ordeal to Sky News back in October. And I'm going to just read you some of it. And then I think we'll see that these things that Sophie's just pointed out, how common they actually are. 
So Bonnie says, he and I had known each other for two and a half years and we started a consensual sexual relationship with each other. I was staying with him and at some point during the night, I became aware that he was on top of me and trying to penetrate me. I remember him, to, I remember him spit on his hand and then he started to rape me. I wanted to move, I wanted to scream, I wasn't able to do anything and I was completely frozen. I actually thought I was having a nightmare. I kept on thinking to myself, move, use your voice, move, scream. And eventually I could. I was able to shove his body off me and I managed to shout, stop. I continued to see him for three more nights. And on the third night, I woke up in the middle of the night, sobbing, my heart pounding. I was sweating profusely. He left London and I thought, I'll never see him again. I don't want to speak to him again. And I ignored all his messages until, a, until two weeks later. And then um, I'll, I'll provide the link in the comments so you can read this for yourself. But what 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 is accounted here are the actual text messages exchanged between Bonnie and and her rapist. And it asks, you know, are you okay? She says no, um, and he says, um, do you want to talk? He said, she says no. Uh, she goes on to say. You know, it's one thing to gently initiate foreplay with someone you're already a lover with whilst they're sleeping. And if they wait and respond positively, then to progress to sex. But she says that she was still fast asleep when you forced yourself inside me. I was frozen with fear and I was so deeply sleepy that I thought I was dreaming. He says, and this is the last text message, he says, I know, I completely read your signs uh, sorry, I completely read wrong your signs and I was very selfish. I noticed it far too late and I'm so sorry. So what we have here then, if we go through our rape myths that you discussed, the four of them, you know, is it a stranger? No. Is there physical injury or resistance? Well, not for a little while. Um, was there an immediate reporting of this rape? And it wasn't until two weeks, two or three weeks later, that that Bonnie um, reported her uh, her complaint to the police. And unfortunately, despite the text messages and her, and her complaint, no further action was taken here. And just reading this at, at face value, I don't see how, or I struggle to see how that can be found to be any form of justice whatsoever. Um, so what you say about the myths is actually articulated and illustrated in that example. Well, and that's the thing, because it's not just one myth at play there. There's so many myths, um, you know, they're, they're so prevalent and there's so many of them that ultimately I think you'd find in most cases of sexual violence, there would be one, if not two, if not more myths at play there yeah. um, it's just shocking to me that that didn't meet the evidential threshold I mean from the text he's clearly admitting to it um and I think <laughs> the defense there is pretty poor um you know she was asleep how can you read those signs wrong somebody is asleep there's no signs mm -hmm. like they're asleep no. um no. It, it just shocks me and I think later on in the article um Bonnie talks about how she thinks there's no point in reporting. And I, I think this ultimately feeds into why we're seeing such a decline in um, in convictions and it's potentially preventing others from reporting because if you were aware of cases like this and you yourself were a victim of sexual violence, 
I imagine you'd be thinking to yourself, well, I'm going to go through all the trauma of reporting it, potentially a trial if they were to be charged and um, entered a not guilty plea. And then for potentially them to be found not guilty or for the police to NFA or for the CPS to decide not to press charges, you know, why would you want to put yourself through that? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting po point in terms of how many cases are reported. Again, to the year ending the end of Mar uh, sorry, March 2020, the uh, the figures uh, for the sort of more up-to-date figures will be released in May this year. But so all we've got to work on is to up to the end of March 2020. There were 55,000 rapes reported to the police. Um, with some rapes having multiple alleged attackers. And there were fewer than 1,500, 1,500 people convicted. It's the lowest number on record. And the, as you allude to, the barriers in terms of coming forward to the police is are extremely high because the Office of National Statistics uh, estimate that the true number of people who are raped every year is as high as could be as high as 107,000. So almost double that reporting. So even if you take, just say take for ease of number, one in two people are coming forward after they've been raped and they are faced with, you know, the likelihood of conviction of around about 1,500, you know, 1,500 convictions out, out of that. I mean, what what can be done about this? Um, I really, I don't know. There's been a wealth of research that suggests that education um, of mm. police officers in particular um, hasn't really made a significant impact. So from sort of my previous research, my idea was always, well, let's, let's start these conversations and start educating people but it appears that that's not really making much of a difference um, I think ultimately we need a massive cultural change I think that so many of these myths feed into sexism and misogyni misogynistic beliefs that um that's where we need to start with this really um sort of breaking down those beliefs that we've had in our society for centuries um, and sort of dismantling that at its core. Okay. You mentioned when we briefly spoke before the interview, the idea of the Savile effect. Can, can you explain what, what that is and, um, and why that's arisen? Yeah. When Jimmy Savile passed away, um, a number of women came forward um, and claimed that he had committed sexual violence to them. I believe some of them were child sexual offences. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was a range of child and adult sexual offences there. And these are all very historic cases. I think they were decades old at this point. Mm -hmm. And essentially, um, as this was in the media, more and more women felt confident enough to um, report to the police sorry, report offences to the police that Jimmy Savile had committed against them. Yeah. And there were a number of women kept coming forward. Um, there were so many reports around that time. And it was deemed to be called the Savile effect. Um, and it was this idea of 
solidarity, I think, with um, with the victims of sexual violence. And this also wasn't exclusive to the offences committed by Jimmy Savile. There was also a stark increase in um, just general reporting and sexual violence. And this was also sort of um, came hand in hand with the Me Too campaign, I believe that started around sort of 2016, 2017, um, possibly yeah. a little bit later. Yeah. Um, and particularly with Harvey Weinstein. Um, so we have this idea of public figures being accused of sexual violence um, and they're notably potentially serial, serial offenders. So other women are coming forward about those same suspects at that point. Um, obviously Jimmy Savile was never able to be tried, but um, Harvey Weinstein was actually convicted. Mm -hmm. but essentially this also allowed victims with other perpetrators to have the confidence to come forward and disclose um, their trauma to the police. Okay, so we, we are now living in a era of women in particular, but obviously that you know uh, other groups can be raped as well, but sort of focusing on women here. But we're, we're dealing with a situation where people have the confidence to come forward, to bring that complaint to the police in the first instance. So we see the spike in cases, but we don't see the spike in convictions. Now, obviously, if the uh, if the suspect or the defendant doesn't enter a guilty plea, they're going to go to Crown Court, have a jury trial. Is this another level then of where rape myths can permeate the process? We already have it, the police, the, the idea of women being... Uh, being seen to be liars or, or, or thought of as liars is myth number one. We've battled through all of these myths that we've discussed. We've moved from the police stage to prosecution, decided to prosecute. The jury, they're going to be open-minded and fair, yeah, and try things on the basis of the evidence that they hear in the courtroom. I think ultimately, I mean, there's such a barrier from a research perspective of being able to mm. research juries. Um, because of the element of jury secrecy, we're not legally allowed to ask them anything about the decision-making um, and why they reached their verdicts. But there is some mock jury trial research that has suggested that juries may be susceptible to endorsing rape myths. And therefore, that alludes to this idea that potentially juries may be endorsing these rape myths and therefore would not be willing to convict the defendant. And some of these rape myths, um, from my understanding, are, you, you know, more societal based than the ones we've discussed previously. So would there be myths around what the person is wearing, the alcohol consumption, flirtatious, provocative behaviour in a bar or a club with a man? Do, do those myths exist? Yeah, there's myths, for example, that if you have sex with somebody once, that they cannot rape you because you've already had sex with them. And again, mm -hmm. there's a lack of understanding of the legal definition of consent. Um, you can withdraw your consent at any point during sex sexual intercourse and um, any number of times. Yeah. So that already is completely dismissed. Um, as you mentioned, the, the clothing element, I mean, at no point does clothing amount to consent. It's just this absolutely ridiculous idea. And yet you'll see it in the media all the time People will be commenting on a victim's 
appearance or their clothing. Um, I remember, I don't know when it was, but there was quite a heated debate on this morning a few years ago. Where, the television um, show, yeah. Yes, on ITV. Yeah. Um, I don't remember who the person on the panel was. I have a feeling it was um, Kim Woodburn, actually. I could be wrong, so sorry, Kim Fire. But um, essentially, this person was arguing that um, we should do more as women to protect ourselves and, and not wear provocative clothing because it might give men the wrong idea. And I think that's such a dangerous narrative to feed because essentially you're victim blaming and mm -hmm. you're also teaching women to protect themselves rather than teaching perpetrators of violence not to commit sexual violence. Um, yeah. That clothing argument opens up a whole can of worms, really, with so many different uh, factors. Can you, can you remember the case in Ireland a couple of years ago where the prosecutor, yeah. uh, sorry, the defence lawyer held up um, the underwear, a, a thong or a piece of underwear? Yeah. And I mean, what's that supposed to tell you? I have a feeling the case was thrown out, wasn't it? They, yeah. they, um, they had, well, you were wearing a thong, therefore you obviously weren't raped, you were asking for it. And that's another common myth. Um, mm -hmm. The victims were asking for it, um, and they deserved to be raped, actually. So, okay. so okay. we have, have myths all the way through the process. All the way through the process from police, prosecution, and then jury as well. And that might go some way to explain the very low number of convictions. You touched upon earlier this idea of a changing culture. Can you take that a, a, a tiny bit further in terms of what we can do to improve this? I think ultimately, as citizens and members of society, we kind of all bear responsibility to challenge sexual violence. So, um, Ed, I remember my first year yourself and Tom Smith ran the intervention initiative. Um, yeah. And that was excellent. That really opened my eyes to this this whole topic, actually. And it was when I really got to grips with understanding all of all of these different myths and um, the extent to, to which sexual violence occurs. But essentially what that entailed was teaching us as students how to identify the risk factors of sexual violence. And particularly, as we all know, university life and student life revolves around going out socializing and consuming a lot of alcohol and what that program did was to allow us to identify risk factors and intervene when we feel that um somebody that we're with you know perhaps a friend may be potentially subjected to violence um should we not intervene a um, classic example is um a girl be implied with drinks, alcoholic drinks, by somebody in a club. Um, they then become too drunk to remember anything, are potentially taken advantage of, and mm -hmm. um, may or may not have recollection of of being raped that night. Um, and it was all about identifying those warning signals and being able to remove that person from that situation. Yeah. Um, so the. the that program that, that was created by Dr. Rachel Fenton, um, mm. that that uh, she's now at Exeter University, but that helped you then, did it? Or at least illuminate the pro potential problematic behaviour? Yeah, I had a feeling that we watched two different, was it two different um, scenarios where in one scenario, there'd be no intervention and the person would become 
subjected to sexual violence and then in the other scenario um somebody would intervene and it would obviously stop it and it just really showed to me the importance of actually intervening and not just being a bystander okay so that's one thing we can do to look out for each other and challenge this problematic behavior I, i suppose because it may not even be you know maliciously intended but the behavior sort of takes root i guess and then the insidious behavior can sort of spread um there's another thing that i i kind of want to touch on it's kind of use it from the this issue from the other side as well so we have issues with prosecution and the prosecution of um uh, of rape complaints we touched earlier you mentioned the false allegation rate is somewhere between the two and Eight, uh, two and ten percent, and now false allegations, as you said, if I remember rightly, is, you know they're not necessarily malicious. They could be a mistake. You're not setting out to harm someone. Um, I remember teaching a case a while ago, the case of Laura Hood, who accused a taxi driver. She was certain, adamant in in court, adamant that she she was raped by a taxi driver who dropped her home, and she after a night of drinking. And she said that he went this way and then that way, and this is where the attack took place. His GPS tracker in his car clearly showed him taking her home. They stopped at a cash point to get cash out, but then he took her straight home. That that, that fundamentally didn't happen. But um, the guy who was accused in this case was arrested in front of his colleagues uh, subjected to intimate searches, you know, his family and friends were aware of this incident sort of involving him. So it brings me to the very contentious question, I'm aware that it's contentious, of suspect anonymity. Mm. Um, is this something you know or feel free you can comment on? Yeah, I really sit on the fence with this idea because there's so many advantages, but there's also so many disadvantages to suspect anonymity. Um, So for a bit of context, in the 1970s, both suspects and complainants of sexual violence and particularly rape were granted with anonymity. Um, But in the late 80s, this was repealed for the defendants, uh, Mm. the suspects only or the defendants only. So the complainants today still have complete anonymity from the media but yeah so even post-conviction yeah so what this means is you can be falsely accused of rape or any kind of sexual violence and um your name is going to be all over the media before there's even um a charge and certainly before there's a conviction and i think the disadvantages of that is if it's a false allegation, there are so many personal and social ramifications of an allegation like that. Um, society tends to sort of view sex offenders as the worst kind of offenders. So you're already ostracized from society. Um, you know, it can have a negative impact on your work, your relationships. Um, I know that you've had Liam Allen on this podcast. He was falsely accused of rape. And he talked about being suicidal. Um, I believe he was almost sort of forced to withdraw from his criminology course at university. Yeah, so he was suspended. Suspended even. So that's, 
that just shows from that one case sort of the extent of the damage that these false allegations can have and particularly when they're in the media um liam's case was absolutely everywhere everybody knew about it so there's obviously issues there with regards to false allegations and and defendants not having anonymity but on the other hand um you know the Savile effect itself speaks towards the argument of not having the defendant anonymity because once Savile was identified as someone that had been accused of these cases of sexual violence other other victims were able to come forward and and say yep this happened to me too so it's a very difficult thing to balance but ultimately I don't know where where we draw the line with it do you think that so uh... On, on one hand, what, in its simplest terms, what we have is the idea if suspects, defendants had anonymity or maybe suspects until the point of charge had anonymity, they are protected from the sort of societal fallout of being accused of a sexual offence. On the other hand, we have, well, by having no anonymity, we have this sort of strength in numbers, this solidarity of people maybe coming forward and, and reporting other incidences from um this particular this particular this particular suspect is there um any benefit in order to kind of satisfy both of those factions by having anonymity for the complainant um sorry anonymity for the suspect but then are there any additional benefits to that particular uh, victim or complainant um, by having their attacker uh, anonymised? Yeah, I think that's quite a strong argument that, particularly in cases where there's a close relationship between the, um, the suspect and the complainant, there's quite a strong argument that the anonymity might encourage the report or at least um, discourage the withdrawal of the complaint because if the media become aware that a girlfriend of a particular person has accused them of rape those who know those people are going to immediately identify the partner um, so that would mean that the, the victim would not have anonymity there mm -hmm. um, regardless of it the name wouldn't be released to the press but those close to the case, or at least in that area, who either know the victim or know know the suspect at that point, um, or the defendant, would be able to identify the victim that way. So that that doesn't really offer them with this idea of complete anonymity. Um, no. And I would I would think that would have an impact on their willingness to not only report the um, the violence, but also it would probably discourage them to withdraw the. The complaint. Okay. Uh, sorry, um, if if they're aware. Yeah. So this kind of the idea that you know the identification of the complainant could be sort of jigsawed together by putting pieces of that suspect taking place in that region, and people know the girlfriend or or partner or whatever, um, and they can piece it together, and then that anonymity is breached anyway, as you say. Yeah, yeah I think there's quite a strong argument there that it could potentially benefit both sides. Okay. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you don't have an answer, that's that's completely fine. Would you, if you were in charge, would you reintroduce anonymity or leave it as we are? I think I would. Um, I'm a bit of a 
poor of due process elements, as you know. Mm. So I hear that. <laughs> what you've been teaching me for the last three years. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I think ultimately, as I said, it would it would potentially benefit both sides. So, yeah, I think it's kind of a no-brainer. I do see the arguments against it, but ultimately, and, you know, the idea that no no other kind of suspect of any other type of offence would enjoy this anonymity, but I think the nature of sexual violence is just so different to any other type of crime that it could be necessary to eradicate in the high, high level of attrition. I, I think you bring two really interesting points up. Those against suspect anonymity often argue, well, if you're accused of murder, you don't receive anonymity. If you're accused of any other offence, the suspect won't receive anonymity. But I think the social stigma attached to these um, these allegations, I, I think, personally, are are worse than the most severe crimes in the country. And obviously, rape, rape is one of them. So I think there does need to be a degree of protection, maybe until the point of charge, rather than, yeah. than straight straight away. But I also think what's often lost is the net benefit to the complainant, like enhancing their anonymity as well. And if I don't that think anyone can... considers that, do they? Sorry, I can't. sorry. That's I just don't think anyone considers that, do they? Um, the benefit to the complainant. <laughs> no, and I I think if that can play a little role in reducing the levels of attrition that's only going to be of benefit mm -hmm. um so so i think that would be really good but i think what you have illuminated to us today is that this is a massive issue um in terms of there is a huge number of allegations every year brought to the police and even bigger numbers that are not reported and yet the conviction rates are appallingly low for a judicial system that is often referred to as the best in the world. And I think we have a lot of work to do on both sides of the coin, both for the suspect in terms of the anonymity argument, but also protecting complainants as well. Um, so thank you, Sophie. That was that was very interesting. Uh, just very briefly before we end, I understand you have quite a popular blog um, would you like to? <laughs> Sorry. I hope it's popular. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you like to tell our viewers about the things you cover? Because uh, I know it's quite a diverse range of topics. Yeah, I actually originally, um, you were the influence of this. I remember you started a blog before you started the podcast um, a couple of years ago. And I wanted to start my own criminal justice blog as well. And um, those of you that know me know I'm passionate about all sorts of different things. And I thought, well, why limit it to criminal justice? Um, so I started a blog called Sofa Talks and it's just a platform where sort of anything goes, any kind of topic, any kind of social issue is able, well, we're able to bring awareness to it. Um, I have a number of different contributors. I'm always very keen for other people to contribute their own blogs to this. We've done themes on mental health and sustainability criminal justice um, and more recently women's rights following um, the, um, my mind's gone blank, uh, International Women's Day. Mm -hmm. um, so if any of the viewers are interested in getting in touch and, and they would like to contribute to that, I'd be um, more than happy to, for that. But yeah, so far I've um, had some really positive feedback on that, um, particularly with regards to the mental health element. Um, quite a few people have been able to reach out and discuss that. 
And also, um, at the moment, I'm working on piecing together a blog on sexual violence, and I've had mm-hmm. a number of um, people come forward and anonymously disclose their experiences of that, and um, that will all be pieced together in a blog in due course. Are you still accepting submissions for the sexual violence piece? Yeah, I'm going to leave that window open for quite a while, as a lot of people have got in touch and said they're not quite ready at this particular point to um, disclose it, but they would like to be involved. So I'm just going to try and leave that open for quite a while, and um, and hopefully people would feel confident and comfortable to. Um, okay. How can people contact you, Soph? Um, so the web address is www.sophtalks.co.uk or my email address is sophiemarsh-97 at hotmail.com. Um, but all my contact details are on the, the blog site there. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us today, Sophie. That was, uh, that was excellent. Um, and I hope our viewers took something from it. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take care. Cheers. I'd like to thank Sophie for joining us today on Criminal Justice Natters to give us a really interesting talk concerning uh, issues with rape attrition uh, in the criminal justice system, issues with rape myths, and also touching upon the idea of suspect anonymity. Um, Sophie's going to be one to watch, so keep your eyes out in the future for her name once she is post-PhD. Also, uh, thanks, Soph, for introducing your blog, Soph Talks, uh, to our viewers. If you have any ideas or want to contribute to Sophie's blog, uh, check it out on www.sophtalks.co.uk. As ever, this show wouldn't run without the support of our viewers, so I'd like to thank Joe Doherty, Donna Jenkins, Lucy Green, Claire Malone, Ian Robbins, Elise Goff, Michael Saw. Pad Ryan and Wolf Ryan for all your help in keeping this show going. If you'd like to donate, please feel free to use the Ko-fi link below and I will see you next time. Thanks a lot.